when I realized that circumstances were going to overtake me this past week and that uh, it would not be possible to get a new sermon produced, I started thinking about what would be an appropriate sermon given where we are in 2 Samuel. And as we'll see, Lord willing, next week, 2 Samuel, uh, in that passage, David is once again on the run, this time fleeing from his son rather than his father-in-law. And during that Uh, his departure from the city of Jerusalem, he encounters uh, a young man from from Gath. Gath was the city, of course, to which David fled at one point away from Saul. He was taken in there. And this young man in uh, in 2 Samuel 15 has recently come from Gath to be a part of David's kingdom, to be a part of Israel. And he is fleeing with him. So uh, this morning, our sermon passage is actually taken from 1 Samuel chapter, chapter 27, verse 1 through chapter 28, verse 2. Chapter 27, verse 1 through chapter 28, verse 2 of 1 Samuel. But our scripture reading, which I'll uh, go to first, is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Matthew 4, 1 to 11. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Please give your full attention This is your father speaking to you. This is the one who loves you more than any other. And who at great great personal cost ensured that you would be able to hear his voice when he speaks. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. Now turning to 1 Samuel chapter 27 and reading through verse 2 of chapter 28. We'll begin at verse 1 of chapter 27. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish, son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes... Let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. 
And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as Shur to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeremelites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel, Therefore he shall always be my servant. In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. This ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we pray that you would keep us from, like Satan, knowing your word, but it having no bearing on our lives. Satan could quote your word backwards and forwards. Quoted your words to the author of your word. And yet clearly he did not believe. We pray that we would know your word backwards and forwards, but that we would believe it, that we would trust in it, that we would gather, gain our hope from it. And so we pray, dear Lord, that you would give us willing minds to receive your word as it is now preached. We pray that you would give us ears to hear. That you would give us insight and wisdom by your spirit. And we pray this in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Now you may remember that in the preceding chapter, in 1 Samuel chapter 26, David conducted a clandestine nighttime raid on Saul. As Saul and his army were encamped on the hill of Hakalah, David, taking Saul's spear and the jar of water from beside Saul as he slept, went to the other side of a, of a valley and stood on the hill and called out to Saul. And he told him that Saul and his men were driving David out of the promised land, telling Saul in effect, or telling David rather, in effect, to go serve other gods. And so it was that David raised his complaint to Saul. He made Saul aware of the fact that he could have taken his life, but he chose not to. And in our passage this morning, we see that David did just what Saul was pushing him to do. Not the serving the other gods part, but about being driven out of Israel. David did remove himself from Saul's land. David had already spent the past several years in the wilderness of Judah to the south of Jerusalem and Bethlehem. 
But it's arguable, arguable that the 16 months that David and his men spent in enemy lands was his true time in the wilderness. And this time even ends with a test for David, similar to David, Satan's test, rather, of Jesus at the end of, of Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness. And so, once again, David flees to Gath. He pleads with the king there, Achish, to take him in. And this is the same king before whom David feigned madness in 1 Samuel chapter 21 because Achish's servants reminded Achish of the song that was sung of David. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. But David, you'll remember, was also known for another reason in the city of Gath. He was known as the one who had struck down their favorite son, Goliath. Goliath was from Gath, and he was probably the most famous son of the city. And it is to this city which produced the greatest single threat to Israel that David flees for refuge from Saul. As we go through the sermon today, I'd ask you to think about this, to hold this thought in front of you. Jesus Christ represented us in his temptations, trials, and death. So his righteousness is counted as the possession of of all who believe in him. Jesus Christ represented us in his temptations, trials, and death. So his righteousness is counted as the possession of all who believe in him. The sermon has three points. The first, a new hero in Gath. The second, the southern campaign. And the third, the test in the wilderness. Again, a new hero in Gath, the southern campaign, and the test in the wilderness. Those are the three parts of the sermon. And we'll begin, of course, with the first, a new hero in Gath. Now, on the one hand, as we've already taken notice, Saul's constant pursuit of and seeking after David to destroy him has now d- driven David and his men into the protection of Israel's enemies, known collectively as the Philistines. Of course, there are all kinds of different tribes or groups of people within this collective uh, uh, name, Philistines. But on the other hand, we also need to reflect on the fact that David is fleeing Israel because he has such a strong conviction that he must not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. How many times did David have the opportunity to take Saul's life, and yet he refused to do so? He wouldn't touch the Lord's anointed. He had too high regard, not necessarily for the king, for Saul, but for the Lord himself who had anointed Saul. And so in order to keep peace, David removes himself not only from the presence, but also from the reach of Saul into Philistine lands. And at the same time, he takes away the source of Saul's greatest temptation himself. He removes himself from the equation. Now in chapter 27, verse 1, David tells himself that Saul will never stop pursuing him while he is in Israel. And that eventually, if he stays there, he's going to perish at Saul's hand. And so he makes the decision to escape to the land of the Philistines. And so David and his uh, 600 men and their families went over to Achish, the king of Gath. And it's with this king and with his people that they took refuge. Now, apparently, David's previous encounter with, uh, Gath, with uh, Achish did not deter Achish from taking him in. And this is perhaps due to the fact that David's reputation as a fighter was so great that that Achish, being a, a very prudent, shrewd man, recognized a warrior when he saw one. He knew of David's capabilities and recognized that having an ally such as David would be 
quite a coup on his part. Verse 3 says that David and all of his men and all of their households lived with Achish at Gath. And this probably would have been somewhere around 3,000 people in David's company. And verse 3 specifically mentions the fact that David's two wives, Ahinoam and Abigail, were there with him in Gath. Verse 4 tells us that David's hoped-for outcome came about. When he found out that David had fled to Gath, Saul stopped all pursuit. He gave up. After an unspecified period of time, but long enough for Achish to be agreeable to the idea, David asks in verse 5 if he might be given one of Achish's country towns so that David and his people can dwell there. Why should I live in the royal city, he says. And Achish is amenable to the idea. In verse 6 we read, So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now this request of David, the granting of this request, it's done because David hides the fact that he's going to use this town to carry out clandestine raids on the Philistines themselves. He gets out from under the eyes of Achish and is able to do things that Achish probably would not have approved of. Ziklag was about 20 miles to the south of Gath, right on the northern border of the territory of Simeon. And it was far enough away from Achish that David could have a fair amount of freedom from the king. And so the very person who had defeated Gath's most famous son had now been given an entire town for him and his people to take as their own. And from this new base of operations, David would locate, close with, and destroy the enemy. It just wasn't the enemy that Achish fought. That brings us to the second point of the sermon, the southern campaign. Now, so far, if you're reading 1 Samuel for the first time, you're not familiar with the storyline, David's actions might seem pretty questionable to you. First, as he said in chapters 26, he was going to have to leave Israel and go into pagan lands where he would serve other gods. And at this point in the chapter, it might look as though David had taken those words to heart. There's been no mention so far of the Lord in this chapter. This chapter doesn't at all mention the Lord. And now it seems that David has sided with Israel's enemies. Verse 7 tells us that the total time that David, his men, and their families lived in Philistia was 16 months. Which gives us a glimmer of hope because we now know that his time in the wilderness exile has a terminus. It has an end point. He's not going to be there forever. It's not 40 days, but neither is it 40 years. But in verse 8, we begin to see what's really going on. We read there, Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. He's going against the allies of Achish. The enemy that David and his men were closing with and destroying wasn't his fellow Judahites, nor any of the northern tribes of Israel, but various peoples in Philistia. Now the Geshurites lived in, the, in southern Philistia, near Egypt. And the Gerzites aren't otherwise known, but the Amalekites are of per- particular interest and they help us to understand the way that David executed his campaigns. The final straw, as it were, in the Lord's rejection of Saul came in chapter 15 when Saul was fighting none other than the Amalekites. And what was Israel supposed to do with the Amalekites? What was supposed to happen to these people? 
Well, because of what Amalek did to Israel in Exodus chapter 17, attacking them right after they had emerged from the Red Sea, they're just getting their bearings on the other side of the Red Sea from Egypt, and Amalek and his people come after and uh, do a raid on them. God promised to utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. God said that he would have war with Amalek from generation to generation. These people, the Amalekites, were to be devoted to destruction, which meant that every single person, along with all of their livestock, all of their possessions, were to be killed. Now that doesn't sit well with us, but this is holy war. This is something that the people of Israel were supposed to do. This was the job that they had been given. They were executing God's judgment upon the pagan peoples of Canaan. This was what they were supposed to do. Israel, in many ways, flows right into the church. But in this way, the church does not behave like Israel. We do not conduct holy wars in the way that Israel did Our battles, our fights, are through prayer, through the Word of God, by living our lives in accordance with God's Word. We don't break out the sword to strike down the enemies of the Lord in the way that David, Saul, and the people of Israel were called to do. Devoting something to destruction was a sacrificial act in which that thing which is devoted is given to the Lord as a sacrifice. But Saul, you'll remember, he held back from the Lord. He didn't kill Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and he spared the best of the sheep and the oxen. He spared the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not destroy them, as chapter 15, verse 9 puts it. The only thing that Saul and his men did devote to destruction, meaning that they devoted these things to the Lord, were the despised and the worthless, the blemished, the spotted, And because of that, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Saul, it seemed, had forgotten his own people's history. He had failed to prosecute God's judgment against against God's and Saul's enemies. But David had not forgotten. He used the gifted city's location to great advantage, going after ancient and new foes alike. He was fulfilling the commands of God that his forefathers and Saul had failed to keep. He was doing for Israel what she had refused to do for the Lord and herself, removing their enemies from the land. Verse 9 says that David would strike the land and leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take the sheep, oxen, donkeys, camels, and take them back to Achish. Now this, we have to hasten to add here, was not conventional devotion to destruction warfare. But David's primary concern was not to keep all of the spoils of war for himself. He was enriching not himself, but his vassal king. And Achish greatly appreciated David's successes. What Achish didn't realize, what David hoped Achish would never find out, was that the spoils of war were not coming to Achish from Judah, but instead were coming from his fellow Philistines. David told Akish, that the raids had been against the Negeb of Judah, or the Negeb of the Jeremelites, or the Negeb of the Kenites. And part of the reason that David didn't leave men or women alive was because he didn't want word to get back to Akish that it was David who had attacked them. 
The text gives us a hint that David knew that he was doing the right thing. It wasn't just for selfish reasons that David was doing these things. In verse 11, after we are given David's thoughts about why he would kill the women as well as the men, we read, such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. Now this word that's translated custom in verse 11 is in, uh, in the ESV and practice, uh, as it may be in an English translation you have before you, is used well over 100 times in the Old Testament. And it's most commonly translated rules, as it is in Deuteronomy 33, verse 10, where Moses blesses the, the tribe of Levi, in which he says, They shall teach Jacob your rules, and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you, and whole burnt offerings on your altar. But just a few verses later, in Deuteronomy 33, verse 21, in Moses' blessings, of Gad, we have a different usage of the same word. He chose the best of the land for himself, for there a commander's portion was reserved, and he came with the heads of the people. With Israel he executed the justice of the Lord and his judgments for Israel. The word that's translated judgments there at the end of that verse is the same word translated rules a few verses earlier in Deuteronomy and custom or practice in our passage from 1 Samuel 27. What's the big deal? Who cares how it's translated? Well, the translation is important, of course. But one commentator writes that even though translated custom or practice, the usual meanings of the word, such as justice, judgment, cannot be suppressed. There is a part of what, Jake, what David is doing that is judgment upon these various peoples. And so David's custom of leaving no one alive after his, raids, after his raids has undertones of justice or judgment to it. Now David, the narrator, may simply be giving us David's rationalization for what he's doing. And certainly David's recorded thought that he shouldn't leave anyone alive lest they bring news to Gath makes it seem as though his motives are less than pure. But we have to keep a couple of, keep a couple of things in mind here. David's actions are not those of a private person. He's a public figure. He is the uncoronated but anointed future king of Israel. And he is prosecuting a war against his people's enemies. He is doing what Saul, for the most part, refused to do, failed to do. And he's doing so while deceiving the king of Gath. But deception and political intrigue are necessary at times to maintain the security and the sovereignty of a nation. David... Though he is not the uh, coronated and enthroned king of Israel, is acting as if he is. He is anointed. He's been anointed for some time by this time. But he's carrying out these raids not for the benefit of himself. He's giving the best. He's giving the majority of what he uh, brings back. He's giving it to the king of Gath. That brings us to the final part of the sermon today, the test in the wilderness. David is doing what Saul has failed to do. David is doing what Israel failed to do. Not perfectly, not completely. He's not uh, completely, totally pushing out, destroying the peoples of the promised land. But he is being obedient to the Lord in a way that his forefathers weren't. By waging war against God's enemies. Now in many ways, David foreshadowed Christ's fulfillment of the law for us. He didn't, he didn't fulfill it himself, but he foreshadowed what 
Christ would do for us. David kept the commands that the Israelites and that Saul, Israel's first king, failed to keep. We have to be careful not to overstate this, but in David's feeble attempts, he pointed to Christ. He pointed to what Christ would do perfectly, what he is merely doing imperfectly. What David pointed to, Jesus actually did. David was attempting to keep the commandments of the Lord for his people by carrying out this holy war against the Amalekites. Jesus kept every single one of his father's commands Not for himself, not for his own benefit, not to earn the favor of his father, but for you and me. And his perfect law keeping, his righteousness is imputed to you and me by God, by his grace, through faith. But David's experience in the Philistine lands, it also pointed forward to Christ's temptation and testing in the wilderness. Now David's Time in the wilderness was not vicarious. He was not the substitute for Israel. He didn't take their place. He didn't atone for their malcontentedness and their disobedience in the wilderness when they were wandering for those 40 years. But you remember that it was Israel's refusal to go into the promised land and to fight the inhabitants there that led God to deny their entry into the promised land. And so David's time also referred back to his forefathers' failure. For a year and four months, David went about his duties without any report of complaint or grumbling. He carried out his obligations. He did what he was supposed to do. He did what Israel was supposed to do. Now, the specific amount of time has no symbolic significance that I've been able to discern, but it was important enough for the author to mention it here in verse 7. But 16 months is a long time to be in exile. And we should remember that it was an exile for David. He was driven out of his land, his future kingdom, by Saul, in much the same way that Joseph and Mary and Jesus were driven out of Egypt by Herod. I think the significance of the amount of time David spent in exile is precisely that it doesn't align in a chronologically symbolic way with either Israel's time in Egypt or their 40 years in the desert. I looked up how many days there are in 16 months and it doesn't match with, real, with anything, if you're going for some sort of numerological reading of what's going on. So David's time in, in, in the deserts between Judah and Egypt makes reference to Israel's time in the desert wilderness, but David does not represent Israel here. He is not standing in their place here as if he's making atonement for their wrongdoing. How do we understand this? I can't say that I follow British royalty closely. But I found it interesting when Prince William and Prince Harry served in the British military that their name tapes, the the name tapes that all military members wear, name and then the the branch in the United States, the branch of the service on the opposite side, their name tapes and name badges wore the name Wales on them. W-A-L-E-S, not the animal, but the region or the country within the country of England. Now, the last name of these two princes isn't Wales. Technically, I believe, they don't have last names. Wales, of course, referred to the fact that they were the sons of the Prince of Wales, Charles, who is the crown prince of the United Kingdom. But the prince and his sons were, at least in uniform, the embodiment of Wales. And if they conducted themselves poorly while serving, it would have been a discredit to the people of Wales as well as to all of the UK. 
Now David at this point isn't king. He's not even crown prince. That's Jonathan. Though Jonathan would never sit on the throne as king. David doesn't represent Israel during his time in the wilderness in the same way he would have had he been king. But inasmuch as David's time in the wilderness is referential to Israel's wilderness wanderings, it serves to point to the one who does represent Israel. Jesus Christ, the true king of Israel, and and indeed true Israel himself. So David's time in the wilderness pointed forward to Christ and even included a test, like Christ's 40 days in the wilderness included. We read at the end of chapter 27 and the beginning of chapter 28 that Achish trusted David thinking that he had made himself an utter stench to his own people. Akish thought there, there is no going back to Israel for David. There's no way he can return to those people. He is mine. Akish believed David when he told him he was making raids against Judah. And as a result, Akish told David in verse 1 of chapter 28 that David and his men would go to war against Israel and fight alongside the Philistines. This is David's test. What would he do? Well, David buys himself time. He tells Achish in verse 2, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. That's a pretty ambiguous answer. But Achish takes it as, I'm going to fight. You're going to see how strongly I fight for you, how well I fight for you. It's not until chapter 21, 29, rather, that we read what happens. You can go home and read that yourselves this afternoon. But just as the Lord provided a way for Abraham not to sacrifice Isaac, so he provides a way for David not to have to kill his own people. David shows his loyalty right up to the point where the other kings of the, of the Philistines would not allow him to go into battle with them. Achish trusted him, but the other kings did not. Now, Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness, it was not just a reference to Israel's 40 years. One day each, for each year that the people of Israel wandered as punishment for their sins against God. Jesus represented Israel during his 40 days in the wilderness. What David did not do, what David could not do, Jesus did perfectly. Jesus embodied Israel. Jesus passed all of the tests, the trials, and the temptations that Israel failed to pass. Jesus was tempted by Satan. Jesus was starving and thirsting. And Satan told him he could give him bread. And Jesus would not give in to his temptations. Where David's actions were at the very best tainted with sin and at worst were heinously sinful, Jesus never sinned. He was perfectly obedient. David could not stand in the place of Israel, or in our place for that matter, but Jesus did. But here's the amazing part about Jesus. Because he represented his people, because he stood in the place of Israel and in your and my place in his time of wilderness wandering, His perfect obedience to all of his father's commands are counted as your obedience and my obedience. We're credited with his obedience. Every single person who truly believes in Jesus Christ, past, present, and future, has this righteousness, his righteousness, reckoned reckoned as our own. 
Now those who aren't represented by Christ, meaning those who refuse to believe in Him as the true King, they do not have Christ's righteousness counted as their own. And they must stand on their own merits before the judge of all mankind, where every sin will be laid bare. And they will not stand. If you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ on the last day, you will not stand. Because you have no righteousness in and of yourselves. And so the, one, the ones who commit sins will be punished for eternity in hell. But if you believe in Jesus Christ as the everlasting Son of God, your sin has already received its punishment. The penalty that you deserved has already been carried out on Jesus himself as he suffered on the cross. He has endured your hell for you so that you do not have to. Jesus Christ hung in your place and in my place on the cross. He bore the penalty that we deserve. He was exiled from the love of His Father and becoming sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And if you believe this, then you have eternal hope. You have unshakable hope. You have true assurance of salvation that cannot be taken from you. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness, for your faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus Christ did what David could not do. David could not stand in the place of his people and make right their past wrongs. But Jesus has done this. He did it for David. He did it for the Old Testament believers. And He does it for us. We are thankful for His obedience that has been counted as our own by faith. We pray, dear Lord, that that imputed righteousness, that credited obedience, would grow into actual obedience. That even as we have been justified, so we would be sanctified. Even as we are reckoned as righteous, we pray, dear Lord, that your Spirit would cause us to grow in righteousness. We are thankful for the obedience of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.